Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey everyone, welcome to Education Suspended. Jessica Pfeiffer here. If I sound a little different, that's because I forgot to bring my microphone home to record this introduction. So I apologize. I hope you all are doing well. Let's hop in and talk about today's episode. So today we connect with Dr. John Conti. Like so many of those that we interview, you know, John is not technically in the field of education, and yet he brings his expertise to us to help us all learn and grow. So John is one of the world's most leading experts in trauma and child abuse prevention. So you might be wondering, what does that have to do with education? Well, it has to do a lot. First and foremost, we go a little bit more in depth into um, the term trauma and trauma-informed, and he helps us kind of conceptualize what does that really mean, right? How do we break that down and how do we begin to understand stress-informed is just as important as trauma-informed. He teaches us a little bit more specifically about about transgenerational trauma and how that shows up and why that is so impactful for our students and for our families that we work with in our schools. And my favorite part is he really highlights the power of empathic connections and yet the vulnerabilities of the empathic strain, both of which we experience in the work that we do in schools. And they're both rooted in empathy and they both impact us in different ways. And so I was really grateful that he brought those two um, concepts up. And I, I personally really want to do a little bit more of focusing on the, in the work that we do, because we're seeing it, we're seeing it tenfold with our teachers. So we are so grateful that John sat down with us. He's, um, doing so much good work out there, even though he's trying to do some of the retired life, he's still out there changing the world. So we were grateful that he sat down and connected with Steve and I. All right, y'all sit back and enjoy education suspended with Dr. John Conti. All right. Wonderful. Oh, I saw him for a second. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> I'm a fleeting person. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, John. So nice to meet you. I I, I should let Jessica start, but nice I, to meet you. I, I just did it. I'm Steve. Hi, Steve. It's good to see you, John. I know that we talked briefly um, and we're excited to pick your brain. We're going to have you introduce yourself to our listeners, what you do, how you got to what you do. And then um, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your own educational story, and is there any connection to that work? I don't remember being a student. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I'm a professor emeritus at the University of Washington. I taught from 1990 to 2017 in the School of Social Work, primarily clinical social work. Starting in 2017 until last year, I was the director of the Joshua Center on Child Sexual Abuse Prevention. Uh, And I work, uh, especially with youth, to develop prevention messages and ideas for other youth. So the Youth Participation Program at the Joshua Center was one of the most exciting things I've done. Uh, I'm now fully retired from the university. I was in graduate school getting a master's in social work, and I was interested 
primarily in in therapy for kids and families. Um, and in the master's program, had a dear friend who uh, was placed at the sexual assault center at Harborview. And really through conversations with her, I began to get interested in um, child sexual abuse. One of my first uh, academic projects was a project with her to look at, at law enforcement interviewing of young children and how that could be done more effectively. And when I started out, I guess I never really thought of it as tur turning out to be something I spent my whole career on. Uh, but in fact, I, it has been my entire career. And as long as I have breath and energy, I will continue to do what I can to work with and, and for other kinds of trauma as well. But my primary interest has been child sexual abuse. So one of the things that I appreciated about our initial conversation as we prepared for this was I, I have shared before on this podcast that I, I have a love-hate relationship with the word trauma, especially in education. What I have found, even, even post-COVID, it's gotten almost more intense. You have a lot of people talking about trauma-informed, trauma-informed, or trauma-informed. And, and I don't know, Grainer, what you think, but oftentimes I think what we what we get to unpack is that it seems to be a little bit of a catchphrase and people don't really understand maybe everything behind that. When you talk about trauma, what comes up for you? Like what, what, are, what are important things that you notice? I don't know. I don't even know where to go with that. Or that even makes sense about kind of just this overusage of this word. Well, you had me with your love-hate relationship. Uh, I also have a love-hate relationship with with the notion, and it's it's complicated. I, I think we tend to privilege some concepts over others, and when something becomes popular, like trauma, then it gets applied to all kinds of negative events, which probably shouldn't be considered trauma. There are many things that happen to human beings that are highly stressful, that are extremely adverse, but they're not necessarily a trauma. If every bad thing is a trauma, then we lose the ability to distinguish between types of bad events. To me, a trauma is an experience that overwhelms the capacity of the individual to manage it when it's taking place. It's often sudden. Uh, it unleashes significant power. Some traumatic events, the more you experience them, the less traumatic in the sense they don't necessarily overwhelm in the same way, but they have a profound negative impact. Trauma-informed has also become kind of, we apply it to everything. Trauma-informed implies that you appreciate that you in the daily course of your activities in most kinds of work will come across people who are traumatized. This is especially true of teachers. Any teacher will have some number of kids in, in a classroom who have been exposed to a trauma, a real trauma, the way we've defined it. Um, and to be informed means that you understand, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but you understand that there's potential trauma trauma effects that you're seeing. 
So we privilege experience by giving it the name trauma, when if we had a better way of separating the kinds of experience, we would do a better job, I think, of understanding the lived experience of that person. Now, one of the ways uh, that I think teachers should be aware of trauma and other bad experiences, that trauma is often seen in the behavior of kids. And Lord knows we've given a lot of attention over the last decades and or, or so to kids who have attention problems. You know, the kid who looks out the window instead of reading the assignment. Where the trauma-informed notion comes is not to assume that that kid has this disorder called ADHD or ADD, but to rather wonder, and if you're trauma-informed, to ask the child, what are you thinking about when you're looking out the window? If the kid is daydreaming, kids will often say, well, I was thinking about going to the swimming pool. But some traumatized kids will say, I was thinking about what happened last night at home and how the teacher responds to the kid who's daydreaming and maybe does have attention uh, deficit uh, difficulties for a neurological or other reason might be different than how you respond to a kid who says, I was thinking of the bad thing that happened. Now, to ask and not do something about it is also a disservice. So if you're going to be a teacher and you're sensitive that some of the behavior you see, uh, attention problems, to be trauma-informed is to ask the child, what are you thinking about? What are you feeling about when you have that experience? But that means you have to be prepared to do something about it. So I want to go a little bit into what you just said. If we overuse the word trauma, we begin to lose sight of of the day-to-day experiences that activate the stress response system over and over and over. Maybe not to the degree that a sexual assault would, but showing up at a school in which your overall sense of belonging is questioned every single day, that you're going to have symptoms that show up. That's going to have lasting impacts. And so are those lasting, I mean, what, what, are you, what is your view on those lasting impacts, right? I think I've worked with students before in which those lasting impacts, they show up a- after a while, like a sensitized stress response system. Yeah, well, that's a complicated issue. I, I mean, I think there's sort of two general sets of responses. Uh, certainly children's behavior can tell you that an experience has had an impact. It can be misbehavior, it can be acting out, it can be being disrespectful to the teacher, it can be fighting with peers, uh, it can can be not doing homework, not turning it in. Those are kind of behavioral symptoms. But there's also sort of the developmental impacts. And in one way, I think of them as the quiet impact. How do you view yourself? How do you view the world in which you live? How do you understand who you are? How good do you feel about yourself? I mean, those sort of more basic developmental processes can be uh, impacted by a range of negative events and sensitivity to that range of events and not to call everything a trauma, I think is important. And I'll give you 
just a really personal example. So three of my uh, grandchildren are biracial. I am completely objective, but I will tell you, they are the three most incredible children in the entire world, without question. And my eight-year-old granddaughter went to school. Uh, my wife's last name is Irish, so my granddaughter knows that she's part Irish. And in a discussion she, on St. Patrick's Day, uh, she was telling her classmates that she was Irish. And some other eight-year-old, who I'm sure is a completely wonderful child as well, said to my granddaughter, you can't be Irish because you're Black. Now, one isolated event, brush it off. But repeatedly getting that message, or you're not as good as, um, that's racism. And again, racism, I think, has profound impacts on development. That in no way was a traumatic event. Is it something that should be responded to? Not damning the other kid, but as an educational experience for both children, sort of absolutely. And that's where I think there's lots of opportunities. Bullying is, is another example. The last eh, 10 or 15 years, we've been paying a lot of attention to bullying. Now, some bullying does actually reach a traumatic level. If you're pushed in a locker and it's locked and then people are banging on it, that can reach a level of an experience that overwhelms the capacity of the person to manage it and can become a trauma with trauma symptoms. If you are pushed every time you walk between math and English, that can become a highly stressful event and you can develop some traumatic-like symptoms like hypervigilance. If you walk really fast between English and math, because you know you're gonna be pushed into the lockers, that's not a trauma necessarily, but your response to it is hypervigilant. In the same way, if in, you know, God forbid it, but if you have a teacher that is particularly critical of your handwriting or your homework, and every time you're in the class, you're anticipating getting a highly stressful response from the teacher, I wouldn't call that a trauma but I would call it highly stressful. And that kid may develop kind of a hypersensitivity or hypervigilance. If it happens enough and it generalizes to other teachers, then you begin to see an impact on the child's sense of the world, self-esteem, sense of other people, you know, trust of adults. Greener, I'm monopolizing. Let me just say one thing and then it's your turn. I'm so sorry. I think I really appreciate what you're, what you're saying, John, because you are, you're highlighting, right, the need for why, in my opinion, we need more really kind of neurodevelopmental training for teachers to understand what are the responses to stress? What, what are we looking at? So we're not missing, A, we're not missing signs, but neither, we're not like dismissing other things as well. So I think it's, I think it's really important what you're saying. Go ahead, Steve. Well, just let me add one thing. A more refined way of thinking about adverse childhood events, distinguishing between those that are moderately stressful, highly stressful, and those that are actually traumatic, and how you can deal with it. And it's, it's really important, I think, to also to recognize, I can't tell you the number of victims I've talked to over the years who said they went to school because it was safe. 
But then if they get into difficulties because they're exhibiting misbehavior, then that safety of a time away from the real trauma is sort of taken away from them. So the hope is that we develop this sense when a kid is behaving in a way it's out of the norm that should raise some concern that that we have teachers who are prepared to kind of respond to that and explore what's what's causing this behavior. John, I, I really looked forward to this interview because I knew I could approach you from a classroom teacher point of view and wish so much that 20, 30 years ago, I would have had that opportunity to ask some of the questions and have some of the experiences that I've had with Jessica and now, you know, on this podcast. What I have heard from many teachers, many of my fellow teachers is, I didn't get into this game to be a therapist. I, I came here to be a teacher. And, and we often remind them, yes, but now we need you to be therapeutic. I think, and I'm not so much asking a question, well, I, I will, but I, I think the game of teaching has changed. And and I, I don't think we're there just to be fillers of knowledge. I think we have to be knowledgeable about the kind of things you're talking about. So what are suggestions? And I, I love also your emphasis on prevention instead of reaction. What are some suggestions or thoughts for teachers in that you can be therapeutic without getting too mired into all the details of things you probably don't want to know about? Uh, well, I'd agree with them. Um, they, they probably shouldn't be a therapist, but that doesn't mean they can't respond in a healing or therapeutic way. And one of the ways I think about it is if you have a kid who can't see the board and you diagnose that, you're going to suggest somebody get that child a eye exam to see if they need glasses. Um, or if you know a kid comes to school hungry, they can't learn if if they're hungry. And so I think modern teaching does require a somewhat broader look at what are the obstacles to learning and still focus, you know, you know on learning. I guess at the most bottom line, a teacher is a, basically a mirror. And the child sees him or herself and how the teacher responds. So, so what's coming up for me, Steve, based on your question, right, of speaking to the teachers is, so as a school social worker, as a school psychologist, I can think of numerous times in which I find out about something through the teacher, right? These teachers are with these kids day in and day out. They, they develop amazing relationships with their students, aka relational safety. And whether it's through verbals or nonverbals, they're picking up on this. And so after a while, I think the other piece that I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship about, about trauma, in particular trauma-informed, is because we focus so much on the kid and we're beginning to lose sight of what are, the, what are the impacts on the adults? What's the impact on the teacher who doesn't have the adequate training, who doesn't have the job around them that promotes regulation? To have years and years and years of kids telling you stories that you didn't know you signed up for that. Do you see that impacting the educators, John? Absolutely. And, and remember, when you have a kid who's in your class and is re-experiencing a traumatic event, when trauma is exhibited in the present, the people who are observing it are observing it as if they were at the time. 
In other words, the distance in time and space disappears. Now, especially if you're an empathic teacher who uses your sense to connect with a child and understand it. You know, if you're oblivious, if you don't want to see it and you're numb and you just shut it all off, it's not going to impact you. But if you're connected to the kid, you know the kid's story or you begin to suspect the kid's story, absolutely, that has an impact. And we call that cumulative trauma. So absolutely, I think there's a cumulative impact. But you know, there's another whole side to this, which I think is also important to recognize. Uh, this is a difficult time to be a teacher. My daughter's a, a principal of an elementary school and you know, periodically the police come to the school either because they're chasing some bad guy in the neighborhood or because there's something at the school. It's a very hard time. And people are angry, which means parents are angry. Some parents who have their own trauma histories, maybe had bad experiences in school, will act it out and take it out on the teacher. So, and oh, on top of it, it's a low paying job. And you have too many kids in your class. And in some schools, you don't get a whole lot of support. So, my God, if you're Talking about a situation where not the teaching, but the dealing with troubled kid is going to have an impact, it seems like it's absolutely right. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that teachers have to do a better job of supporting each other. Teachers have to be able to feel okay saying to somebody, a colleague, are you okay? Uh, you know, do you need me to come in your class for a few minutes? We've, we've got to create a trauma-informed environment is an environment that recognizes that there are a lot of bad things happening. And one thing that has to happen when bad things have happen is you have to let the people who are involved talk about it. Talking about discharges anxiety. Unfortunately, what, what, what happens quite often with teachers and other professionals is they go home and share it with their partners who are even less able to kind of metabolize it. So you have to be in an environment where, where people will let you talk about it, express the affect with it is. If there's problem solving that needs to be done, then there needs to be people, need to be people in the environment who can help you problem solve. I know that sounds easy, but on a day in, day out, lots of kids, lots to do, things going on, it's incredibly difficult. But at the at the most basic, even though we've said we don't like that term, being trauma-informed would be to understand that there are people in the environment you're working with or working for who have trauma histories, that that's going to impact the work, and they're being exposed, if not to actual trauma, to micro-traumas or aggression or, or microaggressions or stressful events, and all of that has a cumulative impact. And why do teachers leave the field? Because it no longer becomes worth what they thought it was going to be when they became a teacher. First of all, I want to love something I don't think we've heard someone say on this podcast, being stress-informed. <laughs> Jessica, you brought it up, and, and John put an exclamation point on it. So thank you for that. And, and the fact that we as teachers need to be mirrors, that's a really an important concept, too, because everybody can do that. Everybody can understand that. So if you don't mind me switching gears just a bit, 
I was just confronted with this today, and I honestly couldn't wait to ask you. I, I know you're from Washington, so you know <clears throat> some of the horrors that have been discovered in the indigenous communities in BC, just north of you in Alberta, and that has just recently popped up again. Can you help us with the concept of, you know, these young people now being triggered by these horrible findings of lost and dead children from many generations ago? And the educators are faced with that. And, and those kids are coming to school on Monday. Talk about intergenerational trauma a little bit. Help us understand that a little bit, or maybe that's not even the right term. But I needed to ask that because I, it's such a real thing right now for many in our indigenous communities. First of all, I think the disappearance of indigenous women is a Holocaust we're doing little about. Um, if it was white women and white girls in Bellevue, Washington disappearing, there'd be a very different reaction. So I, I don't want to take away from that. Um, but I want to expand it a little bit and say that we, some of us have a very hard time talking about any of the past horrors. As you're well aware, better aware than I am, I'm sure, there's all this discussion in some parts of the country about not teaching kids about slavery. And yet there are kids who come today who are the same color as slaves. There are kids coming to school today who have relatives in their family who were slaves. We have kids coming to school today who certainly their grandparents lived through the Holocaust in World War II. It's a kind of bizarre thing to me that we can't recognize these things happen, that denying they happen does no good. Find ways to help kids feel the truth, but also to recognize that they can be safe. For me, what's coming up with your question? You know, from that from that intergenerational perspective, right? In 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 the field of trauma, we talk quite a bit about intergenerational trauma. Even from an epigenetic perspective, how does this show up generations after that experience might be might be gone? But one thing that we focus on a little bit is what's the intergenerational educational experience? And so with these stories coming up, right, I think that is always triggered for me of it might have been generations before. But absolutely, I would imagine walking into an educational setting, which that was where the perpetration happened. To your point, John, you're going to want some reconciliation. You deserve reconciliation. You deserve a place to process. And it might impact you different, differently, but I, I would guess that you're going to be, well, I, research indicates that you're going to be more sensitized than those who, who were not harmed. You know, we're, we're bashing a lot of concepts today, so I'm going to bash another one, <laughs> an intergenerational transmission of trauma. When, when people talk about that, they talk about it like it's some mysterious thing that happens. But the way I think it actually happens is the child is growing with a parent who has a trauma history and observes and feels things. So, for example, if if I was raised by parents who had experienced the Holocaust, and if every time there was a siren, 
my parents stiffened. That's, that's a direct trauma to that child. I'll give you another example that's a little more close to home. We talk about intergeneration, intergenerational trauma from uh, racism. And I had a, a young black man who I will always be thankful for. We were talking about the history of trauma. And he, he shared with me that he grew up to, store, uh, to a story about his grandmother being a teenager working in a white home and being hit with an iron because she burned the shirt. That's, that's not a mysterious intergenerational. For that man, something done to his grandmother was a trauma. The fact that it happened years before, because of his empathic connection and love for his grandmother, that was a very sort of very real trauma. And so parents, they are passing around, passing on by their behavior and how they react to things. Again, one of the one of the unique things about trauma is when it's re-experienced by the person, the distance in time and space disappears. And when you have a loved one talking about it, even though you're not there, you are there because you're wondering, how did my mother deal with that? Some, some years ago, there was an Alaska airline plane coming into Seattle from Hawaii. And it uh, had a lot of people, obviously, who lived in Seattle. There were, there were loved ones of people on that plane who developed intrusive images of the plane flying upside down. And you say, well, wait a minute. The only people who saw the plane flying upside down were some pilots in other planes. No one in Seattle saw that plane flying upside down. Why would they develop intrusive images? Well, through empathic connection. Their loved one was on that plane thinking, oh my God, what was that like? You know, the mind tries to understand that experience. So it is the empathic capacity to try to put yourself in someone else's shoes and then to have someone who is actually exhibiting trauma symptoms, even if they're just slight, even if it's just every time you hug your mother, she freezes for a second. Even You know, that's a trauma response that then sort of builds up. So past trauma, it's past in a historical sense, but in the lived experience of the generations, it's a real trauma that's ex experienced as if it was happening now. Teachers do such an amazing job of developing empathic connections, right? And that goes back to what you were saying earlier, kind of the perfect storm of what we are putting on our educators that is just beyond teaching, right? To show up in an environment in which just the, yes, the traumas of school shootings, the generational impacts of students and their families before them, the stories that they bring. It's, and, and then, yeah, underpaid, a lot of working hours. It is the perfect storm for, for burnout. It just, we're asking a lot. Well, and, you know, remember what, if you're an elementary school teacher and you're looking at a kid and worrying you're seeing what that kid is going to be at 18 or 20 or 25. And that worry is empathic strain. You know that you can only do so much in the year that you have the child. 
And it's probably not going to be enough, either because the adversities are too overwhelming or there isn't enough time or, you know, whatever. I mean, empathic experience with a teacher for a year is great, but for some kids, it's not going to ch change the course of their development. And so I think that worrying about where my what my future student is going to become, I think that's another part of the job that doesn't get talked about very much. Yeah, and we've had teachers before on the post podcast that have that have said like part of the burnout, part of the the stress was you only get a year with the kid. You experience all this anxiety, all this worry, all this rumination about the the what is going to become of them, and you only have them for a year. Which is constantly investing, and then having to deinvest, and one or two or three or however hundred times. Maybe you can do that, but at some point it does have a cumulative impact, which I think is why some some teachers leave or some teachers do something else. I do like to remind teachers, though, that even in that year, you will leave a, a template of experience that this kid has never had, and, and that is never wasted. I, I always want to tell our educators, any good thing you do, it, it might not change the trajectory in the... In, even in the time that you know this child, but you will leave a, a template of experience that does matter, a new filter, a new an, another filter that they can experience life through. So I always like to give teachers that credit, that that love that you're you're giving is not wasted. And maybe a little bit in that vein, I, I will feel really um, like I miss something if I don't ask about kind of the the Joshua center project and and the whole idea of prevention instead of reaction you brought it up early john about how much that was dear to your heart and the idea was prevention i i think that's a more encouraging word for many of our educators is what do we do and jessica and i talk about this all the time what do we do to get ahead of it rather than just react well yeah it's a, obviously a really complicated it's probably a podcast all in of itself yeah Many, many schools are moving toward sex abuse prevention curriculum. Sometimes it's in a single year. Sometimes it's in multiple years. Sometimes it's part of a general health class where they talk about bullying and you know all kinds of things. Basically, sex abuse education, at a minimum, is encouraging kids to disclose, to know that if you have this kind of experience, you can tell about it. And and somebody uh, will respond. Um, you know, there's an increasing interest now in consent, teaching consent to kids, and teachers can model uh, and teach consent behaviors, both peer to peer and 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 student to to teacher. That certainly is a concept that will will be helpful if you know you have to give permission. Before, before certain kinds of touching. Kind of in what you were saying in a way that even if it's a single year, providing a positive experience does create a template. I've evaluated an incredible number of victims and it, it always shocks me that somebody who hated school will say, but oh, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Stream was so kind. Yeah, okay, maybe it doesn't turn a whole life around, although sometimes it may. 
if you can say one person really held up a mirror and said you're a value, but I, you know, I think that's very important. You know, prevention is complex. I, we, why do we ask teachers to be prevention specialists? Well, because it's like the guy who robbed banks said, why do you rob banks? That's, that's where the money is. So kids are in school. And so that's why we have all these demands placed on, on, on teachers. I mean, if you were to ask me, if every teacher sort of had this focus on observing, being empathic, being a mirror, when you see a kid who needs help, referring for help, that's one thing that every teacher could do without huge changing of the of the teacher day. Schools, absolutely, they can do prevention programs. They shouldn't just be one shot. They ought to be periodically through the, you know, all the grades. The the if you term just in terms of sexual abuse, the nature of sexual abuse and the risk changes with each developmental level. And so health classes or whatever kind of looks like a health class, it has to change the prevention message over over time. But that's not a teacher problem. That's a that's a district responsibility. Steve, what's coming up for me and John, tell me if if this sounds right. But I think one of the best forms of prevention for students is also ensuring that you're providing some form of prevention for the adults, for the teachers. Again, creating spaces around them that promotes some sense of regulation, some sense of care for the community and oneself. So I think, I don't know, it feels like they go hand in hand. Yeah, you don't want good people to leave because they're empathically burned out. So creating a school environment, which is caring, supportive, recognizing all the chaos and demands, I think is very important. You've been a part of a lot of high-profile situations and really difficult things that you've had to sort through your own filters in life. So my question is, and I think it relates to our our listeners and our, and particularly our teachers, what do you do to kind of stay balanced and your own sense of equilibrium and and happiness and you know the joy of being grandpa and all, all of that? What yeah. what are your tricks? <laughs> Chasing his dog, that's his trick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> out, so <laughs> no problem. That's right. You know, the only way to to uh re-energize empathic connection is through empathic connections with other people. And absolutely grandchildren and daughters are great at that. And my little 10 pound dog who I just let out, who is with me pretty much constantly all day long. Uh, you know, that's one way. I have a couple of people who I can call if it really kind of crashes in. Um, I also am very blessed in that I do different things. So the the variation in my activity uh, allows me to kind of keep more balanced. I'm sorry about the dog. You do not need to apologize about dogs. I, I I had one one question whether we have time to really talk about it or not. But I really thought about the false idea of teachers feeling like they need to be fixers. I don't like that idea. I, I like the idea that you can empathically get involved with people. And that you can work and learn together rather than one person being the fixer or the other. As we've noticed with something like Sandy Hook Elementary, people descend upon the place to be fixers. 
to kind of fix their own egos in some ways. How, how do we get around that? That's always a scary thought for me. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. It's kind of it's a difficult one to answer in a shorthand way. The desire to help and the unfortunately the belief that we can be more helpful than we actually can be kind of go hand in hand. And we can't fix somebody, we can't change somebody else. We can create the conditions, support, empathy, understanding, caring. We can create the conditions where change is is possible, but especially in, in, in the real world, it's simply creating the conditions, which means that you have to have an attitude that I can bear witness, I can be supportive, I can show concern, I will never promise something I can't deliver. If I were a teacher, I would never say to a child, Okay, I'm going to make you safe now. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't work that way. But you can can create a a mirror. We keep talking about the mirror, but I think that's a really important concept. How we treat somebody tells them how they what they're worth and what their value is. And we can't stop all the bad things that happen to kids. Uh, we but we can certainly be there and try to be a buffer. Beautiful. Beautiful. And we talk about that quite a bit. We talk about one of the the best buffers to childhood adversity are strong relational connections. That that can be schools for so many kids. John, I can't thank you enough for joining us. It has been such an honor. You're such an expert in the field. For you to give us some of your time really means a lot. Well, that's very kind. I, I won't disagree with you, but I disagree with you. But uh, <laughs> I have the privilege of being able to walk away. And the people I've spent my life working with and for don't have the privilege of walking away. They carry it with them. So how could I do anything other than what I do? Yeah. Well, I'm glad that our, our worlds collided. Um, don't hesitate to stay in, in touch in, in the education society community. And thank you for everything that you do and for joining us. Thank you.